All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word, that as we take the time to reflect upon what you have revealed to us, we realize that this has been preserved for us down through the ages because it is specifically designed to teach us about uh, what we believe and the one upon whom we believe. It helps us to orient to your plan and purposes in history that we may orient to your plan and purpose in our lives. Now, Father, during this time, we pray that we might be able to focus upon your word and that as we think about your word, that God the Holy Spirit will use that to challenge each of us in terms of our own uh, specific uh, walk by the Spirit, our own specific spiritual life, that we might be challenged not to be satisfied with where we are, but to continue, continuously push forward that we might grow to maturity and have a tremendous impact in our lives because of your grace in our lives, that we may glorify you both now and forever. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We're studying the life of Christ in Matthew, and this is a period still early in his ministry when he has made two cycles of his ministry in Galilee. Now, this is a map of Galilee, which is in the north. Judah is in the south. In between, you have uh, the territory of Samaria, inhabited by the Samaritans, who were not ethnic Jews. They were sort of a mongrel-type people that had been resettled there after the conquest by Assyria, and so they were looked down upon uh, by the ethnic Jews. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was in Judea. He was reared in Nazareth, which is located right here on the screen in front of you. And Nazareth was just a very small town, probably no more than 150 or so people. And then when he began his public ministry, as I pointed out in the past, he moved to Capernaum here on the uh, north-northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And from there, he conducted his ministry. Now, it's important when we put together the chronology of the life of Christ. This is so hard for people because so much happens, and the Gospels are not necessarily written in chronological order. I've pointed that out with Matthew. Luke is more chronological, but there are things that happened in Jesus' ministry where he teaches the same thing and says the same thing in, in multiple locations. And so we have to be careful how we put things together uh, in terms of the Scripture. And so we're looking at this in terms of Matthew's structure, and in this stage he's showing the buildup of Christ's ministry 
in the north and all that Christ did in the north in his ministry to those in Galilee. And so when we come to chapter 10, it's in the context of the fact that Jesus, as Matthew's presented this, Jesus has already had these uh, at least two tours in Galilee where he has been ministering to people, healing the sick, casting out demons, uh, healing lepers, healing the blind, and now he is going to send out his disciples. The point I want you to remember here in the order that Matthew's presenting it is that Jesus has already had two tours in the Galilee, and now he sends them out, and that will become uh, important as I make some points a little later on. So as we saw last time, at the end of chapter 9, he looked upon the multitudes and had compassion upon them in, in verse 36, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. That's the allusion back to the passage I read in the uh, in Ezekiel chapter 35 and as well as in Jeremiah chapter 50. And so in that context, Jesus is going to send out replacement shepherds. These are the disciples. And so this is what we emphasized last time mostly in the first four verses where Matthew is showing that Jesus is commissioning these disciples to a particular task. And in verse 1 we read, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. And then he lists the names of the uh, twelve uh, disciples who he identifies also as apostles. The only use of that term in Matthew is I pointed out this time. So then we come to verse 5, and he says, we read, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now we ought to ask a couple of questions here as to just exactly what is going on in this stage in Jesus' ministry. Why does he restrict them to just the house of, of Israel and prohibit them from going to either the Gentiles, the term Gentile simply refers to anybody who's not Jewish, and specifically he says not to enter into any of the cities of the Samaritans. Their focus is on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the reason for this goes back to an understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is structured around four eternal unconditional covenants, which we've studied in the past. The foundational covenant was made by God with Abraham in Genesis chapters. It's summarized in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's uh, established in Genesis chapter 15, the actual uh, cutting of the, of the covenant, which is the term in the Hebrew, is in Genesis chapter 17. And the promise is that God is going to make a new people from Abraham, and he's going to bless them, and he's going to bless those who bless his descendants, and he's going to bring judgment upon those who treat them lightly. That's an accurate rendition of the, the way the Hebrew is expressed. He promises three things, basically, as we studied on the Abrahamic covenant. He promises them land. A, a nation needs to have a piece of real estate that is theirs in order to establish a nation. So he describes the borders from the uh, river of Egypt to the river Euphrates 
and across to the Mediterranean. So all of that territory from uh, somewhere about halfway down into the Sinai Peninsula all the way up to the Euphrates, incorporating all the area of Israel today, as well as the uh, Hashemite kingdom of Jordan and much of Syria and Lebanon would be included in the land that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He promised land. That land promise was expanded in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and we call it the land covenant or the real estate covenant. It's an unconditional eternal covenant that this land is going to be eventually given permanently to Israel. But in order to live there and experience the blessing, they have to be in right relationship with God. A second covenant that is built on the Abrahamic covenant has to do with the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God gave to King David. This relates to the second provision in the Abrahamic covenant, and that is a seed. God promised to to Abraham a seed or descendants that would be more numerous than the sand of the seashore or the, or the stars of the sky, uh, a metaphor used to emphasize the vast numbers that would come from him that would uh, be those to whom God would provide his blessing. So the seed, though, is also used to refer more specifically to that line that came from King David that culminates in the Messiah. And so the Davidic covenant uh, singled out David as the one who would be the progenitor of the Messiah eventually, and the Messiah would come from the royal line of David. And this is exactly what took place. Jesus' lineage can be traced back through his mother, not through his father, through his mother. We studied that the reason you have the the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and the and Matthew talks about Joseph is not to show that Joseph is the physical father, but to show that it's impossible for Joseph to be the physical father because Joseph was a descendant of Coniah who from the line of um, of Solomon, and Coniah was cursed, and God cursed his line that none of his seed would ever sit on the throne of Israel. And so Joseph was from the lineage of Coniah, so he could not have been the, the father of, of, of Jesus. He was born of a virgin. It was a miraculous conception and a miraculous birth. And part of the reason for that was not just to show the miraculous nature of his birth, but also to prevent the passing on of the sin nature which is passed on through the man. It is the man who's responsible for sin in the human race. It is in Adam all die, not in Adam and Eve. That's not a sexist statement. That's the way God set things up, that Adam was created first, and because he was created first, he is the representative head of the, of the human race. And so the birth of Jesus fits into the pattern and the promise of the Davidic covenant. So we have the first two elements of the Abrahamic covenant, the land and the seed, and the third is the blessing. And the blessing would come ultimately through the seed who would provide eternal salvation for everyone by dying on the cross, paying the penalty for sin, and bearing our judgment in our place upon the cross. And so this, the mission of Jesus as the son of David is to come to offer the kingdom to Israel. And so his message at this early stage in his ministry must be understood in terms of that messianic ministry. And so it was a ministry that was focused on 
uh, the fulfillment of the promises and the covenants to the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not to the Gentiles. So it is the Jewish people, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose responsibility it was to accept the kingdom and to conform to God's spiritual standards that the kingdom would come in. And so this was the message. This was the message of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's at your doorstep if you would conform to God's God's principles. This was the message that Jesus proclaimed when he went out on his tours through Galilee, and it's the message he will send the disciples with when they go out on their tours. So to understand this, we have to understand that he is fulfilling his mission as the Jewish Messiah, which is why he is sending them only at this point to the house of Israel, uh, house of, of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, some things that I covered some last time, but it's been a few weeks, so we'll review, is that Jesus sent them out. That's a, a the, the word on the left, apostello, which means to send. It is an authoritative action. He is expressing his authority as the Messiah to send them out on this particular mission to delegate that authority to him. He, Jesus sent them out and he commanded them. This word is uh, parangelo. Uh, this is a word that means to charge them with a task. It is a very significant word, a word that often is translated command. Sometimes it's translated charge, sometimes to order, but it has that uh, essential meaning of binding a person to a specific task or a specific mission. It is used in many different cases, and it's been used in the Gospels in several ways. Jesus used it to charge a leper uh, not to go and tell people, but to go to the uh, Levites for cleansing first. He used it to command an evil spirit in Matthew 8.29. He used it to charge Jairus and his wife in terms of the healing of their daughter in Matthew 8.56. And in Matthew 9.21, he gives a mission to his disciples. And so this word indicates this sense of command. Um, we have to understand that not every command in Scripture is for every believer. They are, it's nuanced in terms of the time and the place and the mission, and this is something that we must understand. So Jesus sends them out on a particular mission and defines their mission. Now, their mission is not the mission for every believer at that, at that stage or for every believer in history. We have to understand that because the mission's going to change for them, uh, and we'll look at that in just, just a minute. So he sends them out on a mission, and he gives them specific orders. Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in verse 6. And in both of these uh, statements, he uses the same Greek word indicating he's given instructions as to the, the course of action they should take in the coming coming weeks, and they are not to even enter. The word ace erkomai is a key word, and it means not to enter, not to go inside. They are to stay completely away from the Gentiles. It sounds very harsh, but it has to do with the mission that they're involved in at this particular time. In Matthew 10:7, he gives them the message that they're going to take, which is the kingdom of heaven being at hand. It is a very similar message or a similar structure in the command to what we find at the Great Commission for Believers. The disciples were given a mission. We are given a mission. 
our mission is given at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, 19, and uh, 20, that when we go, we are to uh, teach everything that Jesus commanded. We are to uh, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we are to teach others to obey everything that Jesus Jesus commanded. And so it's the same kind of a structure. The difference is that here it's a present participle as you go because it's talking about their present mission. And uh, then they are to preach. Again, it's a present active imperative in indicating that this is what they are to continuously doing at this particular point in time. It's interesting that in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, you have the, the same verb, to go, peruomai, but the verb there is followed by the commands to baptize and to teach, and both the participle and the verbs are in the aorist tense. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to people, but it's a fine point. And the fine point difference is that by using an aorist tense, Jesus is emphasizing the priority of the mission. He's emphasizing the priority of the mission, not just that it should continuously characterize them, but this should be their highest priority. And in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we have the Great Commission, which defines the mission for every believer in every generation down through the centuries. That is part of our mission. In some way or another, every one of us fits into that mission because it's our responsibility to be involved in evangelism. And in the New Testament, evangelism would culminate under ordinary circumstances with somebody trusting in Christ and then uh, going through water baptism, which was a picture of their positional identification with Christ entering into new life where they recognized that they were no longer slaves to the sin nature, but they had been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So no one in the early church in the apostolic period would have thought that, that a person would trust in Christ and then go uh, weeks or months or years before they were baptized. They would have assumed that if you trusted in Christ, you would automatically be baptized. This is what happened in Acts chapter 2. You had 4,000 men who got saved on the day of Pentecost on the, on the steps of the, of the temple. And if you've been there, and those who are just with me, you remember that one of the things that we saw on those southern steps were these uh, bathing areas that were used for ritual cleansing. They're called mikvah. The plural in the Hebrew is mikvah. Oh, and there were 35 or 40 of these on the southern steps. And so on that day, on the day of Pentecost, when the uh, when Peter preached and 4,000 men responded, and many, many others, women and children also responded, they were baptized right there in those mikvahot on the southern steps. This happened several times in Acts, and so we have these large numbers of people who are baptized, and you have the apostles who would baptize and others, because not everyone who was who accepted Jesus as Messiah on the day of Pentecost was a brand-new believer. Many of them probably had been Old Testament saints, and they're just now hearing about Jesus being the Messiah, and they were trusting in him. So there were many who were baptized there, and it was very efficient, and they were able to fulfill that. And so we see that, that the disciples, by way of application, we see the disciples were given a mission. Our mission is very different from this mission. 
This mission was narrow and focused in relation to the fulfillment of the covenants and the, and the message to Israel, whereas our mission is broader because we are to take the gospel into the whole world. So the emphasis there is on this immediacy of the, uh, of the he- kingdom of heaven and the urgency of their particular message. Now we see the, uh, the, the ministry that they were to be involved in uh, described in verse Eight. They were to heal the sick, they were to cleanse the lepers, they were, to, they were to raise the dead, they were to cast out demons, and Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. And so this is an emphasis on grace. They were to understand grace, that they were, that they were not to uh, be dependent upon the people or asking them for money. They were not to let that be associated with their ministry at all. Now, this is important to understand. This was a targeted instruction for this particular mission. Jesus is not giving universal uh, uh, mandates here for how every ministry should be conducted for all times. Uh, Grace, of course, should be uh, applied in the ministry at all times, and we know that from other passages, but not from this passage. One of the key things in understanding this particular section has to do with understanding the basic principles of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the scholarly term for interpretation. We have to understand how to interpret Scripture. And the best way to do that is to ask those basic questions. Who, what, when, where, and why? Who is speaking and to whom are they speaking? When we ask what, we need to understand what the message is. What is the message? And why is this message being given to those particular people? Many times when Jesus gives instruction to the disciples, for example, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, it not only has implications for their specific ministry, but he is speaking through them to the whole church. In other passages, Jesus is simply giving instruction to the apostles in terms of their particular authoritative mission, and it has no application whatsoever to anyone other than uh, the immediate apostles. So we have to address this question, especially when we come to a passage like this. Is Jesus addressing the apostles uh, alone, or is he giving instructions through them to all of us? Is this the responsibility of church-age believers to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons? Is that our responsibility? Absolutely not. That is not part of the mission of the church. In fact, we have to, we can't just take this verse out of context. We have to understand it in terms of even the next couple of verses. In Matthew 10, 9 and 10, Jesus went on to say, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. In other words, if you're going to go out on a mission and teach the word, don't take any money with you. Now that would not be realistic today, and it wasn't realistic by the end of Jesus' ministry for people not to make provision for their travel. As you know, we just got back from Israel taking a group over there, and most everybody on that trip started preparing for it some six or seven months ago. Some started walking, climbing stairs, doing other physical activity to prepare physically. Others were reading. Others started shopping. They had to buy the right shoes and the right uh, shorts and the right this and the right that and all the uh, technical equipment. But we took time to plan and prepare. 
So we can't look at a passage like this and say, well, this what Jesus is saying is we shouldn't make any provision, we shouldn't do any planning, we shouldn't take any money with us. Uh, in fact, if we were travels, we shouldn't even take luggage with us. That would certainly upset the airlines, wouldn't it, since they're charging us for every bag these days. Not even take an extra change of clothes. Uh, nor sandals. Now, he's not saying don't take any sandals. The, the, the word two there would apply to each of these. Don't take an extra set of sandals, extra staff, uh, but just go in dependence upon the Lord. So when we look at this passage, there's a couple of things that we need to understand in terms of uh, the debate that goes on in understanding this particular passage. It's really odd how people will go and read their views, their opinions, their theologies, or whatever, into so many different passages in Scripture. What we have to learn to do is read in terms of the author's intent and not impose our thoughts, our ideas, our agenda on that of the author. Now, when we come to this particular passage, we have to recognize that there are two other passages for a total of three that seem to convey very similar material. There's our passage here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 uh, down through about verse 26. Uh, there's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 10, and then there's a parallel passage, a seemingly parallel passage in Luke 22, 35 to 37. When you look at the debate, we have to recognize that there are some folks who just reject completely the idea that the Bible has anything to do with objective truth or with God, that it wasn't written by God or even influenced by God. It's not inspired by God, and it has no internal authority. It's just a collection of writings by people who were inventing their own uh, religious take on the messianic teaching of the Bible. We call people like that liberals in terms of their theology because they've rejected the historic uh, conservative view of the Scripture as the divinely inspired Word of God. There's a moderate group in the middle called moderate evangelicals. They, too, have problems with the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. The first group looks at these passages and says, well, see, these are evidence of contradictions in the Scripture. The second group, the moderate evangelicals, will try to minimize the contradictory claim, but they will end up with some sort of weak view of contradiction. And, they, and what happens with both of those is because they don't respect the text of Scripture as communicating truth, they are often guilty of reading their ideas into the scripture. So it's important for us to stop and address this, this hermeneutical issue. First of all, we ask the question of who, who is speaking and who is being addressed. The person speaking, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking as one with authority because he is the Messiah. To whom is he speaking? Matthew makes it very clear that he's addressing the twelve. He makes that clear in verse 1 where he, where Matthew says he called his 12 disciples to him. And then in verse 5, he reinforces that by saying these 12, Jesus sent out and commanded them. So he's addressing the 12. He's not addressing any more. 
In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, the context is very different. The who is very different. Jesus is still the one commissioning a group to carry the gospel of the kingdom out. But we're told in Luke chapter 10 that he appointed 70 and sent them out two by two. Now, I don't care how numerically challenged you can be, you can't confuse 12 with 70. This is talking about two different situations and two different circumstances. So in Matthew 10, Jesus is just sending out the 12. In Luke 10, Jesus appoints 70 and sends them out two by two. But if you read the broader context of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, Luke records the sending out of the 12. So Luke is the only gospel writer who who talks about both the sending out of the 12 and the sending out of the 70. They are not the same thing. The writers were not uh, confused over the particular facts of the situation. So the who involves 12 here. It's not the same as the 70. The second thing we ask is when did this occur and where did it occur? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending his disciples out into Galilee. This is part of his early Galilean ministry, and we see that from the context. He's still focused on Galilee. And in terms of the order of events, Jesus himself has already made two tours of Galilee. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus, we're told that Jesus appointed the 70 and sent them out. And he sent, sends them out, though, to precede his ministry. And what we learn when we take the time to investigate the context is Luke 10 actually takes place toward the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, whereas Matthew 10 takes place towards the first part of Jesus' ministry. We're told in the scripture that Jesus' initial ministry began in Jerusalem, John chapter 2 and John chapter 3, and then he was... Uh, there was so much opposition from the Pharisees that he went back up to the Galilee and he spent much of the next year and a half ministering in the Galilee. And towards the end of his ministry, not long, just a few months before his crucifixion, he came back to Jerusalem and Judea. And John, the Gospel of John gives the account of his work in Jerusalem And Luke describes his work in the surrounding province of Judea. And this is what is described here in Luke chapter 10. And he is sending out a group into Judea preceding, it specifically states in Luke 10, that they go out before Jesus. Whereas in Matthew 10, Jesus has already gone to the areas he's sending the disciples to. There's no restriction of his ministry, uh, of their ministry, rather, in Luke chapter uh, 10. He doesn't say go only to the house of Israel. That restriction was only in Matthew. So there are two different, uh, two different events that are going on. This is why he gives this specific command to provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts nor bag for your journey. Now, Jesus is going to change that in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, we have one of the more interesting passages uh, as Jesus is talking to his disciples right before 
the cross. This is actually the day before uh, he goes to the cross. So it's the daytime, the nighttime of which is going to see him in the upper room celebrating the Last Supper or the Seder with his disciples. And later that night, he will go to the Garden of Gethsemane, be arrested, and then the next day he will be crucified. In Luke chapter uh, 22, uh, we read in verse 35, uh, Jesus saying, and he said to them, when I sent you without money, without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? Now, when did that occur? That's what we're talking about in Matthew 10, right? He reminds them of that, that he had previously commanded them to go, but not to take anything with them, that God would provide for them. So this was part of their training mission. This is one of the, there is a principle here that if you're going to go into any kind of ministry, you have to learn to rely on the Lord. We have to learn to trust in him. As a pastor, there are many times when the congregation faces different challenges. Sometimes they're financial challenges. Sometimes they're personnel challenges. Sometimes they're health challenges. Sometimes they're uh, challenges related to a place to meet. But you have to learn to trust God. And one of the best places to learn that is, is in seminary. What's happened in the last... 15 years or so is, is very disturbing to some of us who've got more maturity in the ministry, and that is that young men uh, and uh, come along and they think they have the gift of pastor-teacher, but they want the seminary to come to them. Now, this is happening all over the world in many different kinds of uh, education systems, and the whole concept of an Internet-based education has become much more popular and much more qualitative in the last 10 years. But when I first started hearing this in the late 90s, that certainly wasn't true. But you have too many men who are coming along saying, well, I've got a wife, I've got kids, I just can't go to seminary. You can't trust God, is what they're saying. I mean, I'm really, con- I'm really convicted and very strong on this. One, some of the most important lessons a seminary student learns when they go to seminary has nothing to do with what they learn in the classroom. It has to do with learning to trust God to provide for them while they go to the best place they can go to get their training, wherever that might be. Because, and I still believe this, if you can't trust God to provide for you and your family to take care of you in Dallas or in Albuquerque or wherever you go to seminary, then how will you ever learn to trust God when you're a pastor? You won't. And it's amazing that that that. that it, it's, I still see this, I think it's generally true, that the men who actually make it a priority to go to wherever they need to go do get a better education and are better prepared to be pastors. For, and, and look at the parallel. If you want to be a lawyer, are you going to say, I just want to get my law degree online? I don't want to go to go to some place that's the best law school in the country. I don't want to go to a Christian law school at Liberty. I don't want to necessarily go to uh, some other law school somewhere else and get the best education possible. I just want to get the minimal. I want to get the minimal because because all I need is the degree. Well, that's the kind of reasoning you hear. But that's not the kind of training God gives people. When God trained Elijah, part of his training included going out into the wilderness and trusting God to provide his nourishment every single day. 
Part of the training that God had for the disciples here was to teach them to trust in him every single day and not to take anything with them. That's part of the training process. It's not just about content. It's not just about theology. It's not just about grammar. It's about learning to trust God to provide for the needs of your congregation when you become a pastor. And so that's part of what Jesus is teaching them at this particular time. But... That's not the mission for every believer at every time. That was a restricted mission. At the end of his ministry, Jesus reminds them of what he taught them and what they learned. He says, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. They learned to trust God. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. See, there's a change. You can't go back and derive uh, timeless principles from Matthew chapter 10 because they were limited. The, all of those instructions were limited to a specific time, a specific place, and a specific purpose. But that purpose is cha- has changed. He gives new instructions. He says, now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no uh, Glock 23, no, that's not what it says. Just wanted to see if everybody was awake this morning. He who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Isn't that interesting? Jesus realized that there was going to be opposition and hostility, and they had the right of self-defense. And so he not only authorizes, he commands them to make sure they are carrying a weapon to protect themselves in the course of their ministry. And so he says, he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that, that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. Uh, and he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. So he ties this to the fact that he's going to be crucified the next day and everything is going to change. Now, another thing to realize in this command not to take anything with him was that this also had a cultural significance in terms of uh, the relationship with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. Alfred Adersheim, a fantastic converted Jew, a Messianic Jew from the mid-19th century, wrote a massive book that's about this thing called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he goes through uh, much and relates much of the Talmud and Mishnah to understand the culture and the context of what Jesus is saying, what's going on in the Gospels, because it doesn't have to do with Greek culture. It has to do with Jewish culture and rabbinic culture. And he says, the directions about not taking staff, shoes, nor money, purse, exactly correspond to the rabbinic injunction not to enter the temple precincts with staff, shoes, and a money girdle. The symbolic reasons underlying this command would in both cases be probably the same. To avoid even the appearance of being engaged on other business when the whole being should be absorbed in the service of God. That's the point he's making, that this language is also the kind of language used by the rabbis in terms of what they should have with them when they go to serve the Lord in the temple because even the appearance of being engaged in some other mission, being distracted in some other uh, other uh, opportunity should not be there. The whole being should be focused and absorbed on in the service of the Lord. One other writer, Alfred Plummer, 
In his commentary on Matthew says that the general meaning in all three Gospels is the same. Make no elaborate preparations, but go as you are. They are not to be like persons traveling for trade or pleasure, but are to go about in all simplicity. He says it is not that they are purposely to augment the hardships of the journey. See, you get somebody with an ascetic mindset, and they think, oh, I just need to get rid of all the comforts of life, and that's going to make me more spiritual. Plummer is saying that's not the point here. The point isn't just to get rid of the comforts for the sake of getting rid of the comforts. He is saying it's not that they are purposely to augment the hardships of the journey, as forbidding staff and sandals might seem to imply, but that they are not to be anxious about equipment. Freedom from care rather than freedom from comfort. That's what he's saying. Freedom from care rather than freedom from comfort is the aim. Their care is to be for their work, not for their personal wants. One of the things that often happens when we go on trips is we try to think about every possible scenario that comes up and we overpack. And you know what happens when we overpack? All of a sudden we get on a trip and we have a lot of stuff that we have to keep track of while we're on the trip. I'm not going to tell you about the things that we almost lost track of on this trip. God protected us in, in many ways. But when you take less, you have less distractions. And you can focus on the mission. And that's the point of these particular commands at this particular time, along with learning to trust God for all of the cares. Now, in verse 11, Jesus goes on to say, Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out. So they're to go into the town and find someone who has a good reputation and who is hospitable and to seek them out. They weren't to stay at some disreputable place because that could harm their testimony and it could injure their reputation. So they were to find a suitable place to stay and they were to investigate where they would stay. And then Jesus goes on to say, when you go into a household, greet it. Be gracious. Be kind. Don't prejudge their response. And then he said, if the household is worthy, that is, if they're responsive to the gospel, let your peace come upon it. This is a typical Middle East greeting that they would, they would bless the house. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. In other words, don't give a blessing to the house. And symbolically, you should shake off the dust from your feet. This just indicates that you have no connection, no responsibility uh, to that particular household because they have rejected the gospel, they too will be rejected in the ultimate time of judgment. This is where Jesus goes in verse 15. He connects this to judgment in a very interesting passage. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, for those of you who love grammar, what do we have in the phrase more tolerable? We have a comparative. That means that God's grace in judgment is going to be ameliorated for some at the last judgment than for others. The concept that it's going to be more tolerable for one group, Sodom and Gomorrah, than for those who reject the gospel of the kingdom indicates that in eternal judgment there will be degrees of judgment. 
Now, that's something that surprises some people. In the lake of fire, there are going to be some places that are terribly miserable and some that are even more miserable. It's all going to be miserable. But that would make sense, doesn't it? Because on the heaven side, there are going to be people with different levels of rewards. So apparently, from these passages, we see that there are going to be different levels of eternal punishment. We see this in passages such as Luke 10. In a similar scenario, when Jesus is giving the instructions to the 70 that are going out, he says, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city, that is the city that rejects the gospel. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These were two uh, villages near the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Bethsaida is the home of John and Andrew. And Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, apparently, even though they saw all the miracles of Jesus and they had the disciples there, they rejected the gospel for the most part. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these were the places which were the center of Baal worship in the Old Testament. This was the, when you looked up paganism in the Old Testament, there's a picture of Phoenicia, of Tyre and Sidon. So these were among the most degraded places in the ancient world. And Jesus said, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Again, we have that word more tolerable. There are degrees of punishment. And then in Luke 10:15, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. That's a term for Sheol, the place of the dead in the Old Testament. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The point that I'm making here is simply that what Jesus says indicates gradations of punishment at, in the lake of fire. He says the same thing in Matthew 11:20. Uh, to 24, but I'm not, it, it's almost identical to the Matthew, I mean, to the Luke 10 passage, so we won't go there. So having said that, Jesus then says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In other words, you'll be surrounded by enemies, by people who want to take advantage of you, people who want to destroy you, people who hate you because you stand for the gospel. Simply because you stand for the truth, they want to destroy you. So he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So how should we handle it? By reaction, by retaliation, by anger, by responding in kind to what the unbeliever says. No, he says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This is simply a metaphor borrowing on a proverbial idea in the ancient world that, that a serpent was somehow wise, it's quiet, it's crafty, it's, it's more subtle like the serpent in the garden, and harmless as doves, it's not a threat. So what Jesus is saying here is to be thoughtful in your response to those who attack you and don't seek to return kind for kind. Don't seek to retaliate. Don't seek to return uh, injustice for injustice. Verse 17, he says, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. 
Now, wait a minute. This didn't happen on this mission, did it? Those of you who are familiar with the scripture know that they were sent out, but they didn't, they, in fact, most of them were welcome. They, there wasn't this kind of retaliation. So what's going on here? Well, remember, we have to put ourselves into the point in time in God's plan in Matthew chapter 10, which means the church age has not been predicted. Remember, Paul always called the church age a mystery. A mystery doesn't refer to something that's an enigma, something that is partially understood or something that is somehow uh, mysterious. It refers to something that hasn't been revealed yet. That's the meaning of mysterion in the, in the scripture and in the Greek culture. A mysterion was something that had, was still undisclosed. It had not yet been revealed. So the church, the fact that there would be this future church age between the cross and the crown was not yet known. So Jesus is talking about what will transpire within the framework of the age of Israel. Now remember what we've learned in the past, that the age of Israel, the time in God's plan for Israel, was laid out in that remarkable promise uh, prophecy that we have in Daniel chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. And in that, time, in, in that passage, God is giving a time frame for Israel, that there will be a period of 490 years between the decree, which we've traced back to Artaxerxes, that the decree to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls and the fortress of Jerusalem, from the date of that decree until the time of Israel's future redemption and the coming in of the kingdom would be 490 years. And as that prophecy breaks it down, it says that there will be 483 years until the Messiah is cut off. And then there's the indication that there is a pause, a gap of time before we get to the last seven years. All of that is describing the age of Israel. Well, from Jesus' perspective, historically, in giving this description to his disciples, he's saying, as you look forward, as you go about this mission, you're going to go into this time of hyper-persecution. We sometimes use the word tribulation to refer to that in terms of a specific or technical term for Daniel's 70th week, that last seven-year period. Jesus says the same kind of thing in Matthew 24, 9. Now, Matthew 24, 9, to remind you, is in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus is describing the events that will take place during that seven-year tribulation. And he says almost the same thing there. He says, then they, that is, those hostile to the gospel in the this uh, time of tribulation, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. He's not talking specifically about the 12 disciples because they won't be alive then. He is talking to future believers through those disciples. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So what we see in Matthew 10, 16 to 18 is that Jesus is talking about the fact, I'm going to send you out on this mission now. You're going to have a certain response. There's going to be a measure of rejection. But then when you get into uh, further rejection in the end times, in that period 
that we call the Great Tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. When you get into that period, then that, that persecution will intensify beyond anything you can imagine. And during that time, that's the focus of Matthew 10:16 to 18. This is talking about characteristics uh, and, and the hostility that believers will experience during the tribulation period. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that we won't go through tribulation. This is one of the uh, attacks we often hear from uh, people who don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, don't believe in dispensationalism, is the only reason you teach the pre-trib rapture is to give people comfort that they won't go through difficulty. But that's not what we're saying at all. It's not that Christians won't go through adversity or tribulation or, or, or difficulty. It's that we won't go through that intense period that we describe as the time of Jacob's wrath from Jeremiah or the time of, of Daniel's 70th week from Daniel 9. In fact, what Jesus said in John 16:33 was that these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world, you will have tribulation. He was talking to his disciples. You and I and the disciples have all gone through difficulties in this life. We have all gone through various stages of adversity. We go through adversity for many different reasons. Sometimes we go through adversity because of the bad decisions that we make. Sometimes we go through adversity because of the bad decisions that other people were associated with make. Our parents our children, our spouses, our friends, not to mention our government. We reap negative consequences because we're joined with other sinners and unbelievers who make bad decisions, and we reap the consequences also of their bad decisions. We go through tribulation because we live in the devil's world, and there will always be difficulty and challenges because we live in the devil's world. So... Those of us who believe in a pre-trib rapture, who believe in dispensationalism, are not saying you're going to have an easy life because of the rapture. We're just saying that God has a plan and a purpose for Israel. That's what Jesus demonstrates in this passage. His plan and purpose for Israel was the mission that was given, or the foundation for the mission that was given to his disciples. The church is given a mission as well. Our mission is to uh, baptize converts in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach believers to obey everything that Jesus taught. We, are, we will, in that process, face adversity and hostility. We will face testing, and it is through testing that we grow and mature as believers. Just to remind you of passages like 1 Corinthians 10.13, that there is no testing overtaken us, but such is as is common to man. We will go through adversity and testing. But God is faithful. No matter what you're facing, God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond your ability because he's given us a sufficient solution in his word. We will not, he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but with the temptation will also make a way to escape that we may be able to bear it. Don't stop too soon on that verse so that we can endure the testing, the difficulty. James 1 says that we're to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance and endurance will yield its mature result that we might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. 
This is our mission as believers. It's not the same as their mission in that in Matthew chapter 10. It's not the same as the mission of the 70 in, in Luke chapter 10. It's not even quite the same as the mission of the disciples as defined in, in Luke chapter 25. What is it about? It is about our mission to uh, communicate the gospel to those who are in need and to see that they receive the proper training necessary to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's part of our response as believers that we make sure that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that can only happen by daily submitting to the teaching of the Word of God and letting our minds be renewed by the Word of God and not being conformed to the world around us, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, reflect upon this passage. There are so many things that are going on in this passage, but ultimately we're reminded that you are still faithful to your promises to Israel and that that was exemplified in this particular mission of the Twelve to take the gospel to the house of Israel, to the lost sheep of Israel. And we have another mission, Father, to take the gospel to the world. And we pray that you would challenge us with the importance of that and that the world starts outside of our front door. We meet people every day. We're involved with people every day, from people we just uh, barely rub shoulders with at the grocery store to people who are more intimately involved with us, members of our families, people we work with, people we care about. And it's our mission to make sure they understand the issues of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that every single human being is born in corruption. We're born spiritually dead. We can't have a relationship with you no matter what our experience may tell us. But your word tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As Isaiah said in the Old Testament, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. No one gets away with it. No one is is immune from sin. Everyone is disobedient, but no one, because we're sinners, can save themselves. You provided that perfect salvation by sending your son. You portrayed that picture in the Old Testament through the sacrifices of the lambs and the goats. This is why Jesus was called the Lamb of God because he came to be our sacrifice, to take away the sin of the world, that by simply believing or trusting in him and him alone, we could have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the truth of these things, make the gospel clear to those who need to understand it, and help us to implement the great commission that you have given to each of us as members of the church age. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.